This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast, it is installment number two of our Rail Splitter book club where we talk about David J. Kent's Lincoln, the man who saved America. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In excellent to each other and party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me is Rail Splitter Nick. What up, internet? <laughs> I was waiting for your internet land uh, tagline there. And Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. So today uh, we're going to do our second installment of our book club, which uh, we've done. We did the first one about four weeks ago, uh, and we're going to do our second one. But uh, before we get into that, uh, we do want to bring everybody some Lincoln news. We try to start each show with a little bit of news for Lincoln, uh, or that's involving Lincoln. And Nick uh, brought us a story about a pen. Yeah. You want Lincoln's pen? You're going to need some money. That's for damn sure. Um, yeah, I saw in Chicago Tribune, uh, Lincoln, there was a fountain pen that Lincoln was given. And let's hear, the still nib fountain pen has a golden colored star pattern on its barrel. Um, the purpose of that was to remind Lincoln about the noble and patriotic purpose of the Civil War. And the grand total for that pen is 41000 $41,000 American. Wow. Damn. Yeah. He better have, like, nibbled on that pen and have a little bit of his teeth marking if I'm paying that much. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding, for sure. Um, and one other thing, I tweeted this out, and I didn't get a response, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it anyway. I've got this feeling there's a, there's a small town in the U.K. in England uh, called Lincoln City, which is because Lincoln's ancestors probably came from England. I think they did come from England. Um, and they have a, a soccer team or football team uh, called the Lincoln City Imps, Lincoln City FC. I just thought it would be fun to kind of follow them a little bit <laughs> um, uh, just because um, we're Lincoln fans. So why not become Lincoln fans? Um, but anyway, so I was just kind of looking into it. I'm not saying we have to do this, but um, they did play yesterday. And Lincoln obviously very much aligned with the podcast, the Imps. Doesn't really fit Abraham Lincoln. What are you gonna do? Uh, but they 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 drew one to one yesterday. Uh, but I think I'm gonna like this team. One, they've got a player whose last name is Whitehouse. Um, they also got a player whose last name is Frecklington, which I just think is a cool name. Um, but they tied the game. They brought it level in the last minute of the game, in the 90th minute, and then they also had someone sent off, like kicked out of the game, a minute later. So in the in extra time, somebody got. A straight red card so it might be a decent team to follow i don't know luke waterfall was his name and he got sent off for lincoln city <laughs> so so if the podcast has a f- football team we're going to support perhaps it's the lincoln city imps but they just drew one to one and got kicked and a guy got kicked out at the very end so um hopefully it was for wrestling are they good uh they're in the fourth division so like you know there's a premiership and then there's you know, the bottom three get sent down to another league. The bottom three of that league get sent down to another. So they're in League Two. League Two is actually the fourth tier. It's kind of confusing. But right now they're in ninth. So uh, they're safely out of the relegation zone, but it doesn't look like they're going to move up to League One. Uh, 14 uh, wins, 9 losses, 12 draws. So they're the ninth team in the fourth shittiest league. Uh, yeah. Fourth best <laughs> league, actually. Not cheering for them. I only cheer for winners. <laughs> I don't know, I'm I just joking. Yeah, the imps, though. Kind of, if they weren't the imps, cool. you know. But anyway, Lincoln Town uh, just drew yesterday on Tuesday. We're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, also, we wanted to share with you a little bit about what we're reading other than Lincoln, the man who saved America, uh, because we do kind of like to fill people in, fill folks in on uh, what else is out there to read and to try to give you some mini book reviews. Uh, Mary, you're kind of uh, one of our – you're a little more literary than, than Nick and I uh, – <laughs> From at times anyway. So what have you been reading recently? Um, I just finished a book called Swift Terrible Sword by Joseph Whelan, and it was a biography about General Philip Sheridan. 
And he is one of my favorite generals from the Civil War. And I thought, well, why not get to know him a little bit better? And the book was excellent. I enjoyed it just as much as I enjoyed Fierce Patriot. And Whoa. the interesting, <laughs> yes, I know. The interesting thing about Sheridan is that he had to write his memoirs all from memory because he lost all his papers, his journals, and his diaries in the Great Chicago Fire. So he's quite different from Grant and Sherman in that we don't have that information about him. So it's a lot harder to write a biography about him, but it was quite good. And I found his life after the civil war to be just as interesting, very controversial because of his relationship with the, uh, the with native Americans, which is, again, he's a historical figure that's got some dark, he's got some dark spots mm -hmm. in his, in his history. Um, so some of that stuff was really tough to read, but you know, it's like studying Lincoln as well. Um, so overall, I really enjoyed it. Very fast paced, like type of book. Oh, I don't want to put this down kind of thing. Um, easy to read. Not, It's not so much academic writing. It's more like Fierce Patriot was in that it's very conversational. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And then I'm reading a book right now called um, Mountains Touched with Fire. And the author's name is Wiley Sword. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. Great name. <laughs> um, and it's about the siege of... Uh, Chattanooga in 1863 and I could possibly be going to Chattanooga and Chickamauga over um, Easter weekend so I thought I better brush up on learning about that battle and I'm only about 30 pages in but it's very interesting very like detailed like incredibly detailed um, but I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, excellent. Um, and if anybody, if you're ever doing like a Lincoln Sites tour of Chicago, there's a great uh, Sheridan statue. And I was just kind of looking up to see the address. And the first thing that popped up was a, a Chicago Tribune article, which was very recent, just from November. Um, and the title is The Complicated History of General Philip Sheridan. So um, they're yeah, probably going to get into some of the same things that you're talking about. Um, but there is a, a pretty, pretty cool uh, monument to Sheridan on Sheridan uh, road in Belmont, which is not far from Wrigley Field. You could uh, hit two landmarks in one if you wanted to. That's cool. Um, not far from the lake. So it's it's pretty cool to take in. Um, but uh, it looks like this is a pretty decent article um, about Sheridan. Um, it also mentions the Great Chicago Fire, which was not caused by a cow, as much as <laughs> the legend would lead you to believe. What? Oh. <laughs> It was caused by dry weather in a giant city made of wood. Uh, those things are not good combinations in the autumn for uh, for Chicago. So, um, anyway, Nick, uh, anything that you're reading that you wanted to fill people in on? Outside my Lincoln City research, I was currently doing uh, <laughs> looking for some new gear. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I just finished a book. I picked it up, and it was uh, dealing about editing, um, like video editing, uh, by Walter Murch, who like edited Apocalypse Now. So, topical book. It's like in a blink of an eye, and kind of goes through his theory on editing. Uh, but then I am also reading Star Wars Battlefront Two. Um, I think it's Inferno Squad. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Was it? Uh, just I started that. Cool. Excellent. Battlefront Twilight, and I enjoyed that. So, just continuing on my Star Wars journey. So, cool. and reading the Lincoln book, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. All right. And I believe I've shared this on the show, but I'm reading Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy for Women Undercover in the Civil War, uh, which uh, is kind of a four, it's a biography of four different women. It kind of intertwines four different stories. Um, about uh, prominent, I don't know if I'd even say prominent, about women who played important roles in the Civil War. Um, one is a spy, one is a soldier, um, and the other two are kind of spies in a, in, this, in a similar way too. So it's pretty cool. It's written by Karen Abbott, who wrote Sin in the Second City, which is a great book on Chicago history, which I really enjoyed, um, that I read a few years ago. Um, I'm also reading The Perfect Mile, which is about... Um, like three people who were in a in a race, so to speak, to be the first person to break the four-minute mile, um, which is pretty cool. And I just finished uh, a book called Hellhound on His Trail, which I think I mentioned in the last show or maybe a couple shows ago about Martin Luther King's assassination and the manhunt for um, his assassin. So 
very, very uh, informative book. I didn't really know a whole lot about that, the history of that. So um, that was interesting, and I enjoyed that book as well and would recommend it. Uh, but our book for today is Lincoln, The Man Who Saved America, specifically chapters 5 through 8, uh, which takes us from uh, Lincoln, the legislator, into his law career and takes us to the White House and cabinet selection, the 1860 election, uh, lots and lots of good stuff. So um, I'll just start and then turn it over to, to both of you um, just by saying that the assessment that I gave uh, on the first installment of this still holds, that this book is very good at doing what it set out to do, which was to be a book for um, people who are not necessarily historians that just want some information about Lincoln. It is very, very well um, designed, and it's concise, and it's succinct, but it's also very informative. Um, and I think these chapters actually, to me, had a little bit more information that I, I think they got, got a little, uh, uh, David Kent got a little deeper in these chapters. Um, it wasn't quite, um, quite uh, as, there were more things in there that I needed brushing up on or, or didn't even know or didn't recall. So I feel like I learned a lot more from this section. Um, and I've enjoyed every chapter so far. But um, I think one, one of the things that took me a while to kind of wrap my head around was what the intent of the book was. And once I realized that, I really got into it. These chapters, I just enjoyed so much more, I think, because I knew that. Um, but also, there's a little bit more to go on, I think, once you kind of get later in Lincoln's life. Um, you could tell that he made some more choices about what, what to include, what not to include, and how to include it. And I was really enjoying kind of going along with him, but also saying like, oh, interesting that he chose to put that in. I didn't even really know about that case, specifically with the lawyer part. Um, and then how, how he does such a good job of being quick, you know, going through, like, I felt like I got a really good sense of, um, the Stephen Douglas debates, the, his lawyering career, his election of 1860. Like, I felt like I got a pretty good feel for it and he did it so efficiently. That impresses me quite a bit. I completely agree with what you said, Jeremy. That's exactly how I feel too about the book. Like I enjoyed chapters five through eight, you know, immensely, um, especially the chapter five, his life, life as a lawyer. And just what I love is that there's all these different facts about Lincoln in there. Um, and I mean, there's so many different facts about Lincoln he could have included, but he's including the ones that are really going to, I think if you're just starting out with Lincoln, you're going to latch onto a few of those and you're going to want, like a person is going to want to know more about them and hopefully read a more in-depth biography about him. And some of them are facts that we as Lincoln nerds take kind of have started taking for granted, but then it's like someone knew it's like, Oh, I didn't know that, you know, he like, like for instance, Stephen T. Logan, when Lincoln was his law partner and Lincoln was a junior in that firm, he only received a third of the money for any of the cases he did. You know, that's something that's, it's like, wow, that's kind of interesting that that's, you know, he had to work his way into being a senior partner eventually with Herndon. Um, so it's little things like that, that I'm, I'm really enjoying. And yeah, I need, there was areas I needed to brush up to, like with the, the, the cases and especially with his legal career. I, that exact part jumped out at me too, because I, I remember drawing a parallel to earlier in the book to, and, and early in a lot of Lincoln biographies talking about him working and giving all of his money to his father early in his life you know until he was 21 and then you know he worked so hard to be that self-made american and becomes a lawyer and he's still giving a chunk of his of his sweat to someone else um obviously that mm -hmm. was an agreement in his partnership in a little bit of a different way but it's like you know man what does he have to do to actually earn his own money um and i like that that interesting parallel with with how hard it, he had to work to finally become a full partner um, in a law firm and how it paralleled to his early labor work. Yeah, I, I agree with both of what you're saying. And I really like that chapter. I thought he did a nice job how he kind of laid it. I really like how he kind of started. Well, first of all, for the, those of you who have not been reading along with us, it kind of goes through um, how he got into becoming a lawyer. And then it kind of goes through like who he worked with as different law partners. 
and kind of how those dynamics worked. And then it kind of dove deeper into some specific cases towards the end of the um, kind of taking a look more detail, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a second. What I liked is kind of how they set the stage. I, I thought it was cool how he kind of set the stage of where law was at out in the Western Front at that time. You know, like there wasn't a lot of, like a lot of law is like, all right, let's look back at past court cases and then build off that. In a lot of cases, there weren't those past court cases in the circuit that they were using, you know, going out. And so a lot of it was kind of in Lincoln's wheelhouse, I think, um, you know, kind of using logic, common sense, instead of using, you know, all this court case and, you know, um, stuff like that. And I kind of liked how he portrayed Lincoln, you know, this guy who just common sense breaks it down. He's not really worried about the fine details of, um, you know, being a lawyer, which he learns under the tutelage of some of these guys. Um, so I really enjoyed how they laid that out. What else did I have written down here? Oh, I love the pictures in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah, they were cool. There were great pictures of like old Springfield, um, some of his different law offices. That really stood out to me. Um, they had a kind of a cool diagram of his patent too. Um, you know, I enjoyed seeing that. I never seen come across that before. So I thought the visuals, which I know is a big part of what he was going for for the book, and I really liked them. I really felt like it enhanced um, this whole chapter to me. I agree. And the one that stuck out the most for me uh, was the photo of the former law office, law office of Lincoln and Herndon. Uh, the photo mm -hmm. that, that he used, uh, probably because there's no other ones uh, that exist that are older than it, um, are from 1865, and they're covered in funeral bunting for Lincoln, um, which is neat. And I really like the sign that says he lives in the hearts of the people. Uh, which mm -hmm. is very similar to now he belongs to the ages or at least similar sentiment. Um, but I just really, really, really like that photo because I can, like I've stood there, you know, and, and that, that is one area of Springfield that, that looks very similar now. Um, and I think they've restored it largely too, but um, you're, that's right there. It's right adjacent um, to, it's right adjacent to the museum, right down from the old state Capitol. Uh, but if you stand outside there, that building still looks very similar to that and cars don't drive by there. It's a, it's a kind of a brick street. Um, but when I was looking at that photo, I really kind of was taken to that, that feeling, uh, in a really, really cool way. Um, so it was cool to see. Um, and I also like seeing those old pictures of Springfield. Um, I just kind of like that in general. I like seeing pictures of, of my hometown from, you know, the mid 19th century, just to kind of see what it's like and try to picture it, you know, and there's one or two build, two buildings that are still there, but um, to to kind of try to picture what time does does to places. So, um, yeah, I agree that the photos, especially of Springfield, were, were really, really cool. So, Mary, you got something? I didn't know. You got good. Um, actually, I was going to say the the photos, looking at the photos, of, and I love looking at old photos too, but the one thing that I did actually draw a parallel to, and this has nothing to do with Lincoln at all, but um, in that one where it's like kind of looking, I guess, down the street, it's like a two-page spread of the photo, the architecture of the buildings is so similar to the architecture of, my, of the downtown Godrich area, and I would imagine both places are the same age, but it was just really interesting to see that, um, like just the similarities in the buildings in Springfield to the buildings in the, in downtown Goddard. Um, I thought that was really cool. It, it's not related to Lincoln, but that was something that kind of stood out to me. Um, and I also love how he starts the chapter off with um, the first, one of the earliest, and I think it's the first um, photo of Lincoln that, that we know of. I love that. That's what the chapter starts off with. Oh, right. The 1846 uh, daguerreotype. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I that is one of my favorites too because it, it obviously is Lincoln, but it doesn't look real Lincoln esque because uh, he's you if you think or at least I think when I look at it that he's so young and it, it really he's not. I mean he's you know he's well into his locker by the time he's in eighteen forty six. Um, so yeah, that's uh, I do like that photo as well, um, and I and I like the the photos of the law partners. Um, that provides a nice context. Um, yeah, and as far as the pictures of this, the, the, the photos of the cities go, um, that also reminds me a lot of Galena, Illinois, um, which is also very much, obviously there's a lot of Grant and Lincoln history there, 
Um, but yeah, that's it looks very similar, has a very similar look and feel um, to those photos. Um, so yeah, I like I really I like, like those like midtown cities um, mm -hmm. that haven't that have always been mid mid size uh, I should say mid size cities um, that that haven't changed as much or at least the architecture hasn't. That's very cool. Yeah, Galena is still like a like is a lot like parts of Springfield where it still has they will look very similar to the pictures of the you know 1800s to what it is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they got the DeSoto house, which, you know, Lincoln was at. So. Yep, yep. Very, very cool. I, I stayed in a room there, and the floor was lopsided. You could have put a golf ball down, it would have rolled to one side. <laughs> very, That's very probably not a good plug. <laughs> very important point about Galena. But anyway, no, if you're looking for Lincoln history, that's an excellent city to visit as well. Um, so another one of my favorite stories always of Lincoln as a lawyer is the riding the circuit uh, and just kind of envisioning that. I mean, I think especially young people think of what a career as, a, as an attorney is um, now versus what it was then. I mean, and he was um, obviously had to work extremely hard and spend a lot of time away from his family uh, and his wife, um, but also just kind of the nature of the work, you know, and I think the, the, this book does a really nice job of pointing out that a vast majority of his legal work was really boring, mundane stuff, you know, like it was, it's not as if he was like a small town lawyer defending or prosecuting these like controversial cases, not to say that he never did that, but, um, I really like how the book was very clear that a, the giant bulk of his, law career was collecting very, very, very small debts that people mm -hmm. owed um, and that it was very tedious work um, and that he had cases that they, they just simply needed a lawyer uh, and he didn't, need, he didn't prepare anything. He didn't, um, you know, invest a lot of time. Basically, he would just take dozens of cases at a time and process them very quickly um, and it really wasn't this glamorous, you know, Perry Mason kind of lawyering that that sometimes gets romanticized in in the media it was uh pretty pretty mundane stuff so i think that's an important point to make and he does it in a way that it kind of makes the the work that it took endearing um and especially all that work on the circuit um just kind of writing writing from town to town and you know really just working extremely hard to, to build a name for himself and also, I think that lent, lent itself to his law career, or not his law career, his political career in a really good way uh, because he was able to, he was known throughout Sangamon County and in the southern uh, part of the state because of his circuit writing. I did notice that uh, he, he did take a stab at, uh, the author took a stab at uh, Mary uh, Lincoln during this yes, part, too. Yes. And I don't know if I noticed that more because of the talk that we had with Dr. McDermott, but. Uh, it definitely stood out to me like, mm -hmm. you know, he's probably eager. I forget the exact wording, something along the lines like he was eager to get away from her, you know, uh, or her erratic, erratic demands. Yeah. Sort of. Well, I'll say this, like, I will never look at Mary Lincoln in the same way as I did before having that conversation with Dr. McDermott. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, and I... I, when I was reading that specific piece, I'm like, Burlingame did the same thing very, very clearly. Like he almost, it was almost like a thesis in his work that um, that Lincoln's ambition in politics and in the law career was driven by his desire not to be at home. <laughs> like I, you know, and and I just kind of took that, you know, as I was reading his work, and it's also in in this one as well. Um, as fact, I guess I just kind of just you know accepted it. Um, and that may not be the case. And I think there's a lot to be learned about Mary Lincoln, uh, but he definitely, um, I feel Burlingame and then to, and then explicitly in, in Kent's work as well, make the case that part of his ambition may have not been necessarily just ambition to be successful, but he just didn't want to be at home. So he had nowhere else to go, but to work. Um, I do think there's an awful lot, even if that were the case, there's an awful lot of ambition because he could have been in a tavern or, just shooting the breeze somewhere um, or, you know, doing, I don't know, whatever other social activities there would be as opposed to working. Uh, but yeah, I thought about that too. And um, 
Nick had the exact same thought. Like, am I? I'm looking at this differently after having that conversation in a very, very good way. Yeah, that's how I felt too. Like, I, I've looked at Mary Lincoln so differently um, ever since we did that pod. Like, and we did the podcast with Dr. McDermott. But also too, I when I went to the lectures last year at the First Lady's Library, like my opinion of her really started to change, and I started to see her in a different light. So when I read that, you know. Not to mention often preferable to the erratic demands of Mary Lincoln back home, I kind of thought, oh, it's, you know, he's in this kind of way of talking about her. And like, I, I mean, I'd like to think that they probably had a pretty happy relationship, you know, and that that wasn't the case, that he was just very ambitious. And he had, he also had to support his family, too. So, of course, he's got to be out on the circuit as well. Yeah, and, and I, and I don't know if I would accept or deny it as much as think about the historical record and like what mm-hmm. what support do we have for either side because i mean it's certainly conceivable that he was doing that but i don't know how we would know that i doubt I, you know yeah. i doubt that there's letters that said like you know i'm staying at work because i don't want to be at home or even anything close to that other than i'm sure there's i know there's plenty of anecdotal evidence about their fights and how loud they got and all that other stuff um, which also, yeah, where, where is that in the historic record as far as reliability? Um, because it's obviously when he's just a town lawyer, people take note of things probably differently when, when a biographer, you know, or William Herndon or whoever it was, was writing a, a biography mm-hmm. to say like, Hey, you know, what was Lincoln like before he was in the Congress? What was he like as a lawyer? Like, Oh yeah. You know what, like to what degree is, is that, uh, reliable? Um, and I certainly am not saying it's not reliable. It definitely is. But um, what what do we then use to make that connection to the mm-hmm. the, the motivation for his ambition? Yep. Um, I one thing that I really liked that uh, was included in this was uh, a, a callback to the the Armstrongs, uh, and that was a nice, fun little story about him doing some small town lawyer tricks and. Um, Felt very much like we were in a little Perry Mason drama when uh, they talked about how he kind of caught caught the witness in a lie. I was thinking like this is like my cousin Vinny, uh, you know, kind of like, oh really? It was, you, know, <laughs> you saw it so clearly, and then it turned out that he really didn't. Um, you know, other you know, I, th- I thought that was was really kind of a fun story. Um, I always am a little partial to any stories about the Reaper trial just because that was the one time that Abraham Lincoln, we verified, did come to, to my hometown in Rockford uh, as part of the, the Reaper trial. Also, the Stanton connection is very, very compelling story as well. Come on, he just sat around in the courtroom Reaper trial. <laughs> he prepared some notes, and he sat there and watched Stanton carry him, just like his presidency, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> The the Reaper trial was an, was on an episode of Drunk History. Was it really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Man, I need to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I that that was part of the in the part of the book too where they uh, showed the diagram for Lincoln's patent, which was just so neat because it just shows his versatility, the versatility of his genius mm-hmm. as well. So. Um, and one other thing I just wanted to mention um, on the lawyer chair, the the law career chapter is the slavery cases that they ended the, that uh, Kent ended the chapter with, um, especially the Bailey v. Cromwell. It was so striking to me because that case, and I really liked it because he brought it up, uh, brought up Dred Scott later. I feel like this case so closely aligns with Dred Scott. And Lincoln won it, so someone, you know, basically his argument was like someone on on free soil should be considered free, um, and that ended up being upheld, which is really the same argument on in the Dred Scott decision, which was at the Supreme Court level later on, um, which did not go that way and was a major catalyst uh, for the Civil War, um, and was a major, um, you know, a major blow to abolition in a way, but also. Um, it kind of expedited everything because it really showed the depth of commitment to slavery um, at many levels, but certainly with um, all the way up through the Supreme Court with Roger Tawney, who um, was a pretty despicable person. So, 
Um, but anyway, I really liked the parallel because when I read that, I'm thinking immediately like, wow, that is so much like Dred Scott. And then in the very next chapter, he talks about Dred Scott in a very, you know, in the very succinct to the point way it, that I think did a really nice job of kind of painting the picture of mm-hmm. slavery on the rise, which um, the title for chapter six, I think is, is really great. A house divided slavery on the rise, like, you know, fits kind of the, the motif of the book, which to the point direct and also right on, right on point. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of going off of that too, like, Chapter five, he kind of builds this case and puts us in his head on how Lincoln thinks from a lawyer's standpoint. And that blends into a lot of how his stance on slavery is, because his stance on slavery is really built off of, you know, the government documents that have been created. You know, the fact that the three-fifths compromise is included, Kent makes the argument, that's why Lincoln believed, you know, that slavery was allowed, because it was included there. But at the same time, that America did have the right to stop the spread of slavery. And he really makes a strong case that the reason Lincoln believed that is because the founding fathers are the same people, you know, who provided the, um, the wording or the thought process of the Northwest Ordinance, which banned slavery. You know, those are the same people that wrote the Declaration of Independence or helped influence that, where it is all men are created equal. So it's really kind of like Lincoln's whole approach, according to me, kind of how it read to me when I was reading it, is it's kind of based on this legal argument, looking at that stuff, you know, that and looking at those cases. And also the fact that they did ban slavery, too, um, from Africa as well was written, you know, um, into all that stuff. So I thought it all transitioned nicely into that. Yes, I agree. It, it did. Yes, I agree as well. Um, one one thing I'm, I'm I think about often is what degree to what to what degree was he using those legal arguments to start to build a framework for abolition versus what how did those legal arguments frame his beliefs because i've Mm -hmm. always i've always felt that he was an abolitionist um, but knew how to get it done or at least had a really good idea how to get it done and knew what to say knew where to say it knew when to say it and that that legal argument that you referenced, Nick, was a very well thought out, articulate legal argument to support it. But like, it was that what he was using to justify it for himself. I don't necessarily believe so. I think he was using that to start to craft um, arguments that he could use to maybe convince border states or uh, people who are on the fence about it to support his idea. And that's not that's a legal argument. There's nothing new. I mean, and it, or not, I shouldn't say new. It hasn't gone away. We still hear people say like, "What did what did the founders intend?" Or what you know, what did they intend with that with that language in the Constitution? Now, you know, two well over two hundred years later, um, which I just find very very fascinating, uh, especially since it was a similar argument that he he used um, at that time. Nobody said like, "Well, yeah, but you know." That was for that was a different time, whereas now it's almost getting it to be a little bit um, what the founders intended with uh, freedom of speech. They obviously didn't have the internet in mind. Um, so how is that? You know, how does that apply? And then the obvious um, connections to the Second Amendment as well. So um, other pieces of the slavery debate. Uh, our buddy Stephen A. Douglas shows up. What do you guys think of the way he was portrayed? Uh, I thought it was a lot of the, I don't know if he broke any new water with that. I thought he did a nice job talking about it. I mean, it didn't like stand out to me like, oh man, this is a new way to look at it. But at the same time, it wasn't like, oh, this is awful. It was just like, hey, Stephen Douglas, you know, the debates. And I thought, man, how boring those debates were. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt about it too. And, um, The one thing that I did enjoy a lot about this chapter um, was just that it was a great refresher for just how chaotic things were in the 1850s. And I think someone that's getting an introduction into Lincoln and even the Civil War is going to come away knowing like, oh, it was really chaotic. And he's outlining all these different acts that, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, and everything that led up to the Civil War. And then it kind of like, 
you know, and then talking about the Lincoln Douglas debates, which I thought was that that Kent did a really good job of um, just like, you know, summarizing the debates. It was very succinct. And, you know, he pulled out really interesting facts and pieces enough that I think people are going to be intrigued enough to go read more about them. Right. You know, something I think, something I think about this, you know, like Lincoln kind of backed him in the corner, you know, the whole Freeport doctrine, which Kent brings mm -hmm. up, you know, um, it's just like how I feel like Douglas just like did the Kansas Nebraska act because, you know, he was looking to get that railroad built and then, you know, he gets stuck with this thing. And then I feel like towards the end of life, I'd be like, gosh, damn this Kansas Nebraska act. It just ruined everything for me. I mean, really, it is the Kansas-Nebraska Act that ruined any chance that he had because he had to be a front runner. You would have to consider him a front runner at some point to become president within this decade frame. But the Kansas-Nebraska Act just really ruined his political career, his legacy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, whether he deserves to have a good legacy or not, I mean, that's a whole different discussion. But man, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was really his undoing by his by his own actions. Yeah, and I think that that's extremely important when you get to the 1860 election and, and why did why and how did Lincoln win and the luxury of being an outsider sometimes is really nice you know a lot of people will uh, and this happens in politics all the way up to now where you have inexperienced politicians and you say well you know they've got no record to run on and then people on that person's political team are probably like yeah he's got no record to run on so there's nothing for you to say you know he voted this way or he did this or he did that uh, it reminds me of a line from that uh, Jimmy Stewart movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, when he's standing there, he's like, "Wow, I, I don't even think I'm going to say a word for my first, you know, for my first year. I'm just going to sit here and, and listen." And then there's a kid that's sitting next to him. He's like, "Well, that's a good way to get reelected." Um, you know, kind of like you know, if especially in the 1850s, if you emerge as a leader, that means that you have to compromise, right? And like Henry Clay becomes a great compromiser. So then. Not, not enough people like him for him to get his ultimate goal, which was the presidency. Stephen A. Douglas, I think, is very similar. He's so ambitious and, and so badly wants the presidency um, that he tries to kind of emerge as this leader uh, of compromise and trying to find ways, like specifically with Kansas and Nebraska. And it turns out that when you do that, just no, you know, there's enough people that don't like you or have no opinion one or the other where you just you don't win national office. Um, and I think that's what happened uh, for him. And then, you know, I think the tide of Republicanism and abolition um, was trending against him, obviously. And uh, we ended up with our hero getting elected. Um, but yeah, I think that um, bringing up the Freeport Doctrine, this this particular part for, for this book, I think if I were, and obviously I'm nowhere near a historian um, or someone who could write a book, but if I were to write a Lincoln biography, the Lincoln-Douglas debates have got to be the most challenging or among the most challenging parts mm -hmm. because they're so important um, and everybody kind of knows of them, but they were kind of boring, like boring in a way. If you're not into that kind of stuff, like they're not like they're, they're not like the, the back and forth kind of debate that you're expecting. They're very, very long, long worded, winded speeches. Um, and it's not like a winner or a loser, you know, right? You don't have the Kennedy Nixon dynamic. Uh, you don't have the, you know, the stage full of nominees in the primaries or anything. Um, you don't have the town hall feel, uh, it's very formal. And, and, um, so I would like, how do you do that? And I think Kent did a really good job of, uh, showing the reader what they needed to know, uh, impressing upon the reader, the importance of the Lincoln Douglas debates setting the stage and painting a picture of them, but not getting too bogged down in the, the mundane details of it. Um, because that's, it's hard to do. And, and sometimes when you, when you're reading more of a in-depth, uh, Lincoln work, sometimes it's a, it's a chore getting through those, you know, or at least it is for me. And I hate to say that as a Lincoln enthusiast, but sometimes I've been like, all right, uh, we get it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's get on with it kind of thing. But they were important, um, for sure. And uh, I thought that they were pretty well, pretty well portrayed uh, in this work. Yeah, mm -hmm. I found it fascinating, and I didn't know this that Lincoln like kept a scrapbook of mm -hmm. all the. Did you guys know this before this book? Mm -hmm. I did not know he did. No, that. I didn't either. I thought that was I, that was one thing that stood out to me. I was like, oh, that's really cool. 
that he and then he sold it as like a bestseller. Did it say it was a bestseller or that he sold it as a book? Make some money off of it. The way I read it, maybe I was reading. It quick. Yeah, it came out in but, 1860, I think. Yeah, so I just found that fascinating because like he actually took clippings for people who maybe didn't read it. I guess Lincoln kept a scrapbook and he would take clippings from all sorts of newspapers because newspapers would, if it was a Democratic newspaper, they would actually spin it, which is mm -hmm. what we're similar with our news programs, unfortunately. Um, and he actually kept clippings of that as well as Republican papers and like put it together in a book format, I guess. So I found that very interesting and fascinating. It, it does say here it was it's um, at the beginning of Chapter 7. It does say it became a bestseller and made clear to everyone the positions of Douglas and Lincoln on the key questions of the day. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think yeah. so, too. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, when they say scrapbook, I'm like picturing like all these like artful borders and stuff, and like, <laughs> little like, flowers everywhere. Yeah, creating like these artsy <laughs> stamps that he's putting around it and all that stuff. I don't think it was that kind of scrapbook. Um, Based on his appearance, I would probably agree with you. Probably yeah. a lot of sloppily cut stuff, jagged edges, glue like pouring out of the side. That's how yeah. I see my Lincoln scrapbooking. As Barry's nagging him in another room. Oh, of what course she is. Yeah, Nick, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kent, uh, then going into chapter seven, uh, we have the election of 1860, um, which I think he did uh, a great job of not just talking about the election itself, but bringing in very important outside events, uh, specifically Harper's Ferry with John Brown and Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, kind of putting those uh, also in context with important Lincoln events like Cooper Union, uh, and then, of course, um, the work, not necessarily by him, but by people on his behalf to secure the nomination. Yeah, I kind of felt like uh, in that chapter, he was kind of, to me, it felt like he was making an argument the two most important things that helped him get elected during that year that lead up to that was John Brown's raid, because of how radical it made these abolitionists. It, like, it made it to the point where we couldn't have an abolitionist, somebody so strong um, of a belief in that because it was too radical and how that was kind of stoking that fire. And then uh, the whole uh, Cooper Union speech. I kind of felt like he was saying those were the two most important events mm -hmm. that allowed him to get the name recognition and the right political environment for him to rise to power. Yeah, and I, yeah, agree I, agree. Yeah. Um, I agree that that's what he's trying to say, and I would agree that those are accurate, combined with uh, the um, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and it, it sounds, it also, I noticed too, like, you know, he's emphasizing the, the middle ground that Lincoln kind of stood. You know, he doesn't, he's not like an abolitionist like Seward was, and I think Kent really hits home with that idea when he has that quote from Horace Greeley, where Horace Greeley is actually talking about Edward Bates. But when I read the quote, I was like, is he talking about Lincoln? Because he says, like, the perfect Republican candidate would be an anti-slavery man, mm -hmm. per se, cannot be elected, but a tariff, river and harbor, Pacific Railroad, free homestead man may succeed, although he is anti-slavery. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that that's important to know. And we've talked about that on the show a couple of times. And it was similar to kind of what I was just talking about with Douglas, uh, where the suspicion, you know, was never really 100% like, was Lincoln an abolitionist or not? Mm -hmm. And the electorate, you know, wasn't really all that clear, although people kind of, I mean, as far as Republicans go. Um, so him being at least thought of as a moderate was hugely important in the nomination process. And I think that's pretty well shown here in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, one photo I really liked in when they talked about Illinois, specifically in the Illinois convention, I thought that was interesting, and I really liked that Richard Oglesby uh, was was featured, uh, especially in uh, the book. Um, he ends up being a governor um, after the time he's talked about in this book. Uh, interesting little fact, uh, we always stop in Oglesby on the way to Springfield to get a subway there, So and a couple other options. <laughs> so if you're ever going down I-39 between Rockford and Springfield, Oglesby, nice spot to stretch your legs. I got a flat tire right before the Oglesby exit once, so yeah, it's a yeah. great story, isn't it? It's either Oglesby it or Oglesby in El Paso. I don't think there's a John El Paso that's going to be uh, in a Lincoln biography, but there is a Richard Oglesby, so 
uh, worth checking out. Um, El, pa- El Paso. I knew a couple kids from El Paso, Illinois. Oh, yeah? My roommate True was from El Paso. One of my roommates. Um, so, and then, of course, we get to the Republican convention in Chicago, the Wigwam, uh, which uh, also, by the way, if you're into Lincoln tourism in Chicago, there is a little plaque that uh, signifies where that happened. Uh, but that's the only thing that's there to commemorate it. I believe it's on Lake Lake Avenue, Lake Street, Lake Street. Um, but they, uh, I really like the the drawing. It's obviously an artist's uh, rendition of the wigwam, but it's uh, it's pretty neat to see, at least get an idea for what it may have looked like inside uh, inside the wigwam. That's always a piece of history that I think would have been fascinating to be parachuted in on just to see what what kind of chaos that was and. You know, I know Nikki like telling the stories about the know nothings and, um, the you know all that kind of stuff going on, which was was very very cool as well. Damn, Fillmore. <laughs> we should for that. We should build a wigwam. We should. <laughs> Just how hard is it, right? Yeah, yeah, they built one that could hold thousands of people and had a what became a major parties convention in there. So we could do a wigwam meetup. Um, yeah, for sure. And yeah, when, when Real Splitter Nation has its has its convention, we might need a wigwam for it. Uh, Actually, I I will refuse to do the convention in anything but a wigwam. <laughs> All right, <laughs> the gauntlet has been thrown down. It will be in a wigwam. Uh, obviously, it goes without saying that our favorite heading for any section of the book uh, is right after the coverage of the election. That says the rail splitter rides the rails to Washington. Yep. I'm like, oh, a little shout, a little shout out before you knew we existed. Yep. I like it. Um, but I'll, I just, even if we weren't the rail splitters, uh, I think that's a brilliantly worded little section. The rail splitter rides the rails. Um, so very, very cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean. I'd like to see a little bit more pages to the rail splitters, uh, but you know, maybe in the newer edition that comes out, um, you know, he'll revisit that and, um, yeah, something I'd like to ask him about. Yeah, I will say though, every time <laughs> I ride a train of any kind from now on, I'm just gonna like text, put it in the group text, uh, and then tweet out to everybody that the rail splitter rides the rails. <laughs> Because I think it's brilliant. So that's good. I like that. <laughs> uh, and then that takes us into chapter eight, uh, which is the preserving the union is the title of the chapter, uh, which also could be the title for Lincoln's presidency, where they uh, where Kent talks about the inauguration and cabinet selection, uh, which is a great um, topic. Um, obviously, kind of built around the whole team of rivals idea of. Uh, putting together his his team and obviously the selection of Seward as being a very key part of that um, that that um, decision making process. Uh, my favorite photo from this section is that photo of the first inauguration, first inaugural, uh, which was um, the anniversary just passed, March fourth. Uh, but that's just such a neat picture um, to see see that moment in history. And what it looked like in 1861 and you can also see the scaffolding um on the um renovations of the, the dome the capitol dome mm-hmm. yeah. you know i felt this this chapter to me and maybe because i was reading here before we went on um felt there was so much there was so much i think this is the problem that you know uh, the issue is He's trying to write, Kent's, you know, going for the condensed book for the casual reader, and then it gets to this period, and so much happened. I mean, this chapter we had, um, you know, the cabinet selection. We had, you know, um, the death of his son. We had uh, Fort Sumner. We had, you know, Antietam, emancipation. It was just so much got covered in it, and I would like to see some of that hashed out. I felt, kind of felt like it, it got all you know, just kind of thrown in this one chapter. And I understand that because that's challenge of writing this type of book dealing with Lincoln. You know, this is why some of the Lincoln bios are so long. It's because of hashing the stuff out a little bit. Um, I don't know. Did you guys feel like it was rushed a little bit? 
Yes. Kind of clunky, I guess, is, is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I certainly had that impression too. I just thought, oh, there's a whole lot going on. And I was kind of surprised it wasn't divided up into two chapters. I don't know how he could have did that. Maybe focus more on the politics, like maybe a little bit more about the cabinet selection and the inaugural and then get into like, you know, first bull run and like Scott McClellan, the Peninsula campaign and all that. But yeah, I did. I, I felt the same as you, Nick. Yeah, that makes it maybe go to the cabinet and then you do Fort Sumner. And then that kind of gives us a break. I don't know. When does the death of the sun come in? Um, it's near the, it's near the, it's in, in the chat or in the section on the peninsula campaign. Uh, Timeline wise. Do you guys know? Yeah, 1862. Um, Fe yeah. February 20th, 1862. 1862. Okay. And one thing that I liked about, well, I liked and had it took me a minute to kind of get my head around it about the first part of the book. Um, and even the, the chapter, some of the chapters we talked about tonight, like when we went through Lincoln's law career, he was also a legislator at the time. He was in the general general assembly. He was a representative at the state level, but that was covered in a different chapter. So like there was the political, there was a chapter on politics and then there's a chapter on his law career, even though they were kind of, even though they were definitely occurring at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a, a good way to do it in a book like this because I could, okay, now I'm learning about his law career. Now I'm learning about his, his political career, knowing that they're at the same time. And then, you know, now I'm also learning about his personal life. That might have ser served this chapter better because essentially this entire chapter was like the first half of his presidency right yeah There's so much going on um and like and i agree with you nick like it's it is you know this is what we signed up for this is a succinct work this is a quick read um and it and it does accomplish that but i can see somebody having a hard time like digesting all of it because you go from inauguration and cabinet right into the war um talk about the Anaconda plan and the Peninsula campaign, and then you're already at Antietam. Um, and in there, they talk about uh, a little bit about his marriage and then about his son dying. It just does feel like like a lot. Um, I don't think it's uh, – I don't think it was a poor choice. I'd be interested to hear if, like, in earlier versions of the book, if that was separated out um, or if – you know, or, or kind of what the decision process was to, to including all of that in the same chapter, because um, it was it was ambitious for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it would also be interesting if there was a possible way to talk to um, somebody who's just getting into Lincoln or somebody who wasn't you know, just wanted to learn about Lincoln. Like, how did it feel reading this? Because um, Lincoln's life is different than most, because as it progresses, the more we know about it. And the more interesting it becomes until the end, right? It's not like most most biographies kind of have rise and fall. You know, we, you know, hopefully all of us have that in our lives where, you know, professional life, family life, whatever, and retirement, and then we, you know, and there's kind of a, you know, mine's always rising. Yeah, or yeah, unless you're Nick, always well, hopefully not like Lincoln's, but um, you know, I do think that there's something to that where like the the with every page you turn in Lincoln biography, I find myself getting more and more interested because I'm getting into, um, you know, things that we know about civil wars, the civil war and, uh, second inaugural, the assassination, all that kind of stuff. Not to say that the other stuff is not interesting or important, but all of that stuff kind of informs the later stuff. Like I'm, when I'm reading about childhood, I'm reading like what, what in the childhood made him become the person that passed, the 14th amendment what in his childhood made him become the person that wrote the gettysburg address and then when i get to the gettysburg address i just you know oh it's kind of like you know the payoff at the end of a novel or something um so like we know so much more about this point in time and there are so many books written about i mean there's individual sentences in here that have entire books written about them so i don't mm -hmm. envy david kent's position in trying to combine this all into one chapter um and i don't know how else he would have done it um, I think it worked. I think that uh, that he accomplished what he needed to. But I agree, it's that's a lot. That's a lot to get, a lot of information um, to get through. And like you, it's not like you can. I mean, you got to be, you got to be really deliberately 
and actively engaged in reading it. It's not something you're just kind of like, oh, learn a bit about Lincoln because there's so much stuff. Yeah, and I was just kind of looking back at the chapters too, some of the pages, trying to think about how to do it. And I don't know if I have an answer either without going longer, which is kind of getting away from the purpose of why I did the book. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's definitely a challenge that, um, you know, the challenge is taking this such a detailed, so many people want, and just simplifying it when there are so many, you know, complex things. I would be curious to talk to somebody who's not as Lincoln nerdy as us mm -hmm. and get their take on this chapter and see how they felt. So um, I'm going to make Kara read it later tonight. And then, no, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Nick's significant other. Um who's very knowledgeable about American history. So I don't know if she would be the best subject for That's our, true. our little experiment, but I'll give it to my six hour. And have them <laughs> <read it. laughs> They're also very knowledgeable. They are in next class. So, um, uh, any other thoughts about maybe chapters five through eight in general, um, or what you're looking for maybe in the final three, I believe we have three more chapters. I think of all the chapters, I enjoyed the lawyer one the most. That for me was like just, I, you know, I learned so much in that chapter. And I, one thing I loved was just the section on the cases and how he, you know, how he picked those cases. And those cases show like Lincoln's, I think, evolution as a lawyer, his changes in thinking. And they're, you know, they're basically like four different areas that later will you know serve lincoln when he's he's president as well so i i loved reading about those um and i actually like i enjoyed all the chapters um just the chapter eight was just there was a whole lot going on mm -hmm. in it and you know even like i was like oh there's a lot like someone that's just starting out with this might feel a little bit overwhelmed with this chapter yeah and yeah, I, I agree with you uh, I also love chapter five. I thought that was great. That was definitely my favorite. Um, and I really liked those first three just flowed so well into each other. Five, six, and seven, mm -hmm. you know, going from um, the lawyer to the Stephen Douglas debates to, um, you know, his run for the nomination and election. I thought he did a great job blending all those in there. I mean, even really eight going into that. I think it all blends nicely. It's got a nice build to it. We're starting to see the evolution of Lincoln. Um, so I, I agree with Marianne on that too. Yeah, and I and I want and this may it may have come across as a criticism, and I don't I certainly wasn't intending to criticize by any means chapter eight. Um, just kind of acknowledge that um, in such an ambitious undertaking, I was writing a book about one of the most compelling Americans in history in this fashion. Uh, I think that's just kind of like. Like when you decide to do that, this is going to be something that's going to happen. Like you're going to have to have a whole lot of content in a very small space. And I think he pulled it off, but I do think it's an awful lot. Um, and I think that as we continue to read the book, there's going to be more things like, but what about this? Or what about that? Or I want more on this when he just doesn't have the space to do it with this project, um, which is why I'm really glad we chose this book because it's so much different. You know, I've read a lot of Lincoln books and it's so much different. And I'm very glad that I read it because I probably would not have read it if, if we hadn't chosen it for this book club. And I don't mean that as a knock at all on the book. I just, I probably would not have picked it up um, because I'm a jerk, I'm a snob, you know? And I was like, oh, you know, I've, I've read multi-volume, blah, blah, blah. And, and as I'm reading, I'm like, God, this is really fun. I'm really enjoying reading this. Um, and I am learning quite a lot. Um, and I, and I will, you know, if you're hoping for a, a rail splitter, uh, argument, you're not going to get one because I, chapter five was my favorite too. I thought it was excellent. Um, and he did a great job of making a fairly mundane law career. Very, very compelling and very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm really glad we're doing this. I'm really glad we chose this book. I hope uh, everybody out there who's either reading along or just following along with us is also enjoying it. Um, because it is a really, really good way to learn about Lincoln. Um, and this is a book uh, that I'll go back to and read. Some of my other Lincoln books I go back to 
Um, and if I have like the search function on my my Kindle, I can look up like, okay, we got a show coming up on this, and I'll look up specific things. This book, I think I'm going to be much more inclined to be like, I think I'm going to read about this part of Lincoln's life, this section, as opposed to like, I need to know specifically about this case, this legislation, or, or this debate, um, whereas this is much more something I can kind of maybe enjoy a little bit more. So I'm glad, and, and I think it's been good so far. I'm really looking forward to uh, chapters 9 and 10 and then talking about the book as a whole, uh, which we'll do in uh, four weeks or so. Um, and we'll announce, I'll give you guys a week or so notice uh, to keep plowing through the book. And uh, we'll have one more installment of the Rail Splitter Book Club, or at least the first edition of the Rail Splitter Book Club coming up. Any uh, last thoughts on the chapters uh, five through eight before we move into our This Week in Lincoln? Uh, I completely agree with everything you said about it, Jeremy. I'm so happy we chose this book to read and said the one thing and I said this at the beginning I'm enjoying all the little facts about Lincoln that he's decided to include because it's those little facts that you know like I said someone could latch on to and be like oh I'm gonna go and read you know a more in-depth biography about him and I'm just I'm really enjoying it um immensely it's I've I bought it back in September just as a book that I was like oh it has a lot of cool pictures in it and it's going to become part of my Lincoln book collection and I just hadn't got around to reading it and I don't know if I ever would have. And so I'm thankful that we chose it for that because it's really great. Yeah, for sure. Um, this week we've got an excellent This Week in Lincoln choice uh, brought to us by Rail Splitter Mary. So I'll turn it over to you, but I will just say that I'm pretty excited for this one. This one was pretty cool. Okay, well, one of my followers tweeted me, it was Darren J. Weeks, he tweeted me this the other day, and it is a, um, it's like a Cheeto that is, looks like Lincoln, and it is for sale on eBay, and $3 US plus $3.50 shipping, and it is indeed a, like a Cheeto, looks like the side profile of Abraham Lincoln, it's, like, it just made me laugh when I saw it. But I'm like, okay, this is for sale on eBay. So, currently, you could buy a pen used by Lincoln for $40,000 or a Cheeto that looks like Lincoln for $4, roughly. Um, so, depending on where you are financially, one of those two things could be yours. Um, or you could maybe just roll the dice and buy a bag of Cheetos and hope that you might find that diamond in the rough. Find that needle in that haystack that is the elusive, perfect Lincoln Cheeto. Uh, and then sell it on eBay for more than $3 for it being a, a Lincoln or Cheeto. Should I purchase it, the Lincoln Cheeto? See, <laughs> so we get it sent in the mail? I just sent it to you guys in the real splitter chat, too, so you can see it. $3. $3.50 for shipping? That's ludicrous. It's a, it's Ooh, a I Cheeto. Bet. I got Cheeto. a bag of Cheetos for $53. What's so great about this Cheeto bag? All right, sorry. Abraham Lincoln Cheetos. Oh, there's two photos. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it does look like him. It's also tall and skinny, but, you know, a lot of Cheetos are. Yeah. Yes. How they stand it up on that one? Is that one standing up? No, never mind. I All see. right, so if I you see. get in a bidding war, uh, you very, might, very likely might be in with uh, one of us. <laughs> To get the elusive get it for, the, get it for the rail splitter collection, the Cheeto and the pen. Uh, and for those, I think who, I, for those of you who are listening, I'm going to go forty-one thousand right now, guys. Forty-one thousand. So uh, you have forty-one thousand and one cent. Uh, I, I will say this for those of you who are listening. Um, I had not seen a photo of it, so when Mary described it to me, I was picturing a Cheeto that looked like Abraham Lincoln exactly. So when you do look at the photo. You might be a little disappointed. It resembles Abraham Lincoln, but it is not exactly a Cheeto sculpture that would no. pass. That would pass. I mean, it's not like we would ever have an orange president anyway that looks like a Cheeto. That would be really bad. Whoa, whoa. Bad side profile. Oh, man. Yeah, dude. It just why, why, you gotta, why do you got to bring the – why you got to make it so stormy? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> oh that was good. Uh, I thought we signed an agreement about that, Nick. Uh, you did not sign your part of it. <laughs> no. Okay, this is yeah. This went down. <laughs> this went down a road that we did not intend it to go down. So, 
Uh, any parting thoughts before we uh, we leave for the for the week, Mary or Nick? No. <laughs> I think we've done enough. <laughs> so uh, thank you to David J. Kent for writing Lincoln, the Man Who Saved America. We've really had some fun with this book club, and we really appreciate those of you who've followed along and read along with us. Definitely share your thoughts with us on Twitter, Instagram. We are at RailsplitterPod. You can always email us at therailsplitterpodcast at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is popping. We, that's been really, really a nice uh, addition that we've made. Uh, we have been getting new members almost daily or multiple uh, members in a day, which has been really, really cool to see. So uh, thank you to Railsplitter Nation for tuning in. Please join us on the Facebook group. If you haven't yet given us a review on iTunes, we would really appreciate that just because that helps us become accessible to more people who are searching for an Abraham Lincoln podcast. Uh, so uh, for Mary and Nick, my name is Jeremy. Thank you for listening this week. And please continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you next week.